Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC main card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow fight analysts Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Bloody Elbow podcasts are proud to be sponsored by RevGear. They've been a pioneer in the industry and have grown into a formidable brand and true leader in the MMA gear market. Bloody Elbow listeners get 20% off. Go to RevGear.com slash Bloody Elbow email sign up. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Vivis section with me, Zane Simon, and my co-hosts, as always, Connor Rebush. That's me. Yeah, okay, thanks. We're here once again talking about this week's UFC card going down at the Madison Square Garden in New York City, New York, UFC 295, Yuri Prashaska, Alex Pereira, and uh, a pay-per-view that's fine considering what we were supposed to have. What were we supposed to have? We're supposed to have John Jones versus Steve Miocic at the top of it. Yeah, I wouldn't even call this fine for a pay-per-view, to be honest. It's uh, I know it has two title fights. Like, mm-hmm. that is supposed to be the requirement for a big card. But it's light heavyweight and heavyweight. You know, I can't deny the light heavyweight title fight. Justifiably the main event, by the way. So glad yeah. they did that. Because this is like, of course, it's like guaranteed action mm-hmm. and you know probably the co-main event will be very action-packed as well i can't i can't see how it wouldn't be they're not bad fights but um i don't know not I'm much of saying. an undercard to speak of uh no really big name not a lot of names in general yeah uh, i'm just saying that if it had had the Jones Miocic fight the top, and I don't. I will be one of the people. I'm just gonna say straight up. I get that it is like a nonsense title fight. Yeah, but I don't care. I'm actually still just interested in whatever fights John Jones is gonna have at heavyweight. Even yeah. even if there are only a couple of them, I am interested. Um, can't help it. And so you had that at, on a pay per view that then would have. I can't remember if they was Aspinall Pavlovich already on this card when that fight fell off. Mm, maybe. I don't don't remember when that was announced. Let's see. Oh, Pavlovich added UC two ninety five. And I find out. Uh, no, apparently Sergey Pavlovich was the originally intended backup. Okay, so the Jones Miocic fight. So okay, so that actually does make this a pretty weak pay per view, no matter what. Where like I mean, you know, it would have had the the big heavyweight main event and mm-hmm. a good, very good title fight co-main. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and then you'd be at Andrade Dern, Frivola Santanini, Sabatini Lopez. Like, if if you had Pavlovich Aspinall on this anyway, mm-hmm. and that heavyweight title fight main event, and yeah, you're kicking off the to... main card with Frivola Santanini, I'm down for all that. Yeah, that starts to feel a little more, a little more meaty. Mm-hmm. Although apparently uh, they did have Derek Brunson versus Roman Delidze on this card. That would have helped as well. Yeah. Although Derek Brunson then asked for the, his UFC release instead of taking that fight and got it. Well, hey, good for him. Yep. We saw what Ngano did. Derek Brunson is about to become a boxing champion. That's right. He was destined for it all this time. If only he didn't have to deal with all this wrestling. He could just That's use it. boxing. <laughs> He'd be killing it. That's right. I would love to see Derek Brunson in a boxing match. Doing what? <laughs> Doing his thing. What do you mean? <sighs> just <There> holding. <laughs> just relentlessly holding his opponent against the ropes. Just spazzing out. Eyes wide. Just... Leg stiff before a single punch touches him on the chin. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He would knock somebody out. Given enough time, it's sort of a Shakespeare monkeys typewriter situation. Yeah. yeah. Given enough time, Derek Brunson's boxing game would work once. <laughs> Not everyone can deal with that chaos. Uh, yeah, I mean the pay-per-view, it's fine. It's good it's good. There are good fights on it. I mean it's, you know. It sucks, Zane. Give it up. Doesn't, Give up the pretense. It's bullshit. I'm excited for the top two fights. And as long as the headliners are good, I'm always going to be willing to just cave on the fact that the rest of it is fine. This guy's a sucker. This guy is a grade A sucker. That's your host, folks. As long as the main event's good, you can just spit in my eye. Yep. Rip my dick off, kick me down the stairs, run me over with a bus. Oh, the main event's good. Folder, dude. What's that? Yeah, my my slash fic folder, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I need to talk to you about that. <laughs> concerning content, to be honest. <laughs> if you were my son, we'd be having a long talk with like the guidance counselor right now. <laughs> like, your son is disturbed. Um, anyway, the main event, the co-main event, undeniably good, big, beefy, exciting. What's not to like? My my magic school bus slash fic is is actually just about the bus <laughs> <laughs> running you over. <laughs> that's that's the magic. It has the magic power to end my suffering. <laughs> <sighs> Also, I realized that guidance counselor is the person who tells you what job you're going to do. Yeah, that's okay. We all get it. We all, we all figured out what you were yeah. doing. Your son has a future a career in public transportation. <laughs> <laughs> Begging passengers to, to take his seat in the driver's seat and run him over. <laughs> hey, could you rip my dick off while you're at it? Anyway, let's anyway. talk about the fights. Yeah. Yuri Prashazka, Alex Pereira. Yeah. It's an awesome fight. It is. And, 
Yeah, for a minute, I was kind of worried that Jamal Hill was somehow just going to be able to hold on to the light heavyweight title while he was injured. And we'd just have Yuri back milling about. But uh, let's be honest, Jamal shouldn't have had to give it up, but Yuri shouldn't have given it up in the first place. Yeah. These guys are suckers. They really are. I do not have the belt. They can't like take it away from you. Like that's like a huge payday and future payday for you. Keep the belt. Yeah. I don't. I really don't. I hope they got step aside money. Uh, Well, you know, but even that, even that it's 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 the by design, whatever money they might have been given is a. Yeah, if they're very short term investment, that would have been a lot less than they might have made. Yeah, if they're willing to pay it to you, it's because it costs them less to do that than it does to absolutely to keep you as champion. Yeah. So anyway, um, weirdly, I, I guess the universe has righted itself. Yuri Prochaska was was the light heavyweight champion on the back of one of the most exciting light heavyweight title fights ever. Yep. Against Glover Teixeira. <clears throat> And that is a fight like that is really the essential difficulty in picking a fight like this. Yes. Cause was other than this sort of very broad dynamics of what kind of fight each guy wanted to have, what I ask you was predictable about that Prashaska to share a fight. That Prashaska would get hit really hard. That to share would, would take him down and out grapple him, but that he would hurt Glover and hit him a ton back and that. Yeah. Every single possible thing that can happen in a light heavyweight MMA fight would happen. Yeah. I mean, basically, it was insanity. If, if Yuri's in the fight, you know he is going to get taken down if the person who wants is trying to take him down wants to take him down. Right. That'll happen at least once. That he will hop in and out of range and looking to land absolute kill shot bombs while also eating one every time he hops in. Yeah. And that you better kill him because he's just not going to stop. Yeah. Absolute chaos is is the problem. And, And I say it's a problem because when I look at this, my gut feeling is there's no way Yuri Prochaska doesn't get chinned by Alex Pereira. No way. Yeah. And then then the hesitation is very well understood. (laughs) Like, fundamentally, Yuri Prochaska has no striking defense. Yeah. Uh, His striking defense is to have his eyes open and be looking at his opponent. he, he, He has some in that he will make like a much worse version of Adesanya, the same problem I talked about around Adesanya's last two fights, um, in a much worse, less systematic way, he will respond to things by moving his head. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he will slip, he will try to roll under shots. Every once in a while, he can put a few of these moves together. Yeah. Typically, however... Anybody who throws combinations at him, particularly combinations leading with the jab, i.e. the most basic kind of combination, they will get an overreaction to the jab, which can then be brutally punished Mm -hmm. because there's not that much depth to his defense. And when he is on the attack, defense is literally non-existent. It goes out the window. Yeah. He comes in with his chin super high, 
hands literally hanging down by his waist um, when they're not, you know, extending towards the target. He is a wide open and he gets nailed so hard and so clean in every single fight. Yep. And I just cannot imagine somebody with those traits not getting their clock cleaned by Alex Padetta. Fair. But then there's the chaos to consider. Yeah. So <laughs> what do you think? I mean, what worries you from, from, from the, if we take it, not saying you agree with this, but if we take the baseline assumption that Pereira has a fundamental striking advantage in this fight, what's yeah. the concern for him? The concern for him is that given some reach parity to work against. That's big. Alex Pereira is not exactly a, a, a masterful striking defender himself. That is 100% true. And when he does get hit clean, he often tends to get really shook up. Yeah, I think Prochaska's style only works as well as it does because um, I almost, when I talked about this the other day, I was like, well, both these guys aren't as durable as they could be. And then I considered just how often and how cleanly Prochaska gets hit. Yeah. And how relatively rarely he's actually been notably hurt. And I realized yeah. he actually has an incredible chin. Yeah. And Pereira has a good chin. He recovers well. He's rarely finished, but it's not close to as good as Yuri's, I don't think. Yeah. And I I, I also just feel like a little bit like Pereira might have a little bit of that tunnel vision problem. Yeah. Where he's doing what work he's doing and he assumes that he will be insulated by his reach. And so when he gets hit by something, it often just seems like it, you know, it freezes him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in every Israel Adesanya fight he's had, except the first one, when he has gotten hurt in those fights, it's just like he is moments from being finished. Mm hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, he got a little wobbled, but he's scrambling and he's holding on. And what's he going to do? It's like, no, he is frozen and eating shots. And we are just wondering if somebody, you know, that last shot is going to land before the bell rings. And in the case where he lost to Adesanya, he, you know. He just got knocked out cold. Yeah, it was just one and out cold. And that often seems like what he's on the border of when it was he gets two. Hit actually, clean. that was one where he, he got frozen. Yeah. And then the coffin nail. landed. And the, then the coffin nail landed. Yeah. And that seems like what he's often on the border of mm -hmm. when he gets hit clean. So that is a huge concern for me mm -hmm. against Yuri Prashaska. Because, what yeah, he, go on, go on. As I say, he will eat shots, but he is also just a constant whirling dervish of power and creativity. And he's huge and rangy and fast. Yeah. And he doesn't slow down. So. Yeah. Then again, is a complete 
uh, a bred in willingness to eat shots a good idea? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, Alex Pereira in particular. It's not. And uh, how good does your chin have to be to eat a Pereira left hook and not be like, oh my God. I've yeah. just I've just seen the face of death. Like I can't let that happen again. If not, just getting KO'd outright. Yeah, I mean we're gonna find out. I think. Yeah, I so I think a a really um um a really big question in this fight is I mean I I think this is so often the case, but I think it's really really important here, uh, particularly for Prashaska, is who gets to come forward, mm. who insists on pressuring. I think Pereira has honestly gotten quite a lot better not pressuring over the course of his MMA career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was already fairly flexible, like strategically. He wasn't always pressuring people, though he clearly liked it best in, in yeah. kickboxing. But he's become quite comfortable. Um, his footwork has gotten better. Um, and his long-range striking has gotten better. And, and so he's gotten a lot more effective and relaxed and patient as a sort of open space circling kind of fighter yeah so i don't think it's necessarily a death sentence for him if he doesn't press forward although if yuri gets rolling his defensive liabilities and durability problems will absolutely be a serious concern yeah if however padeta commits to pressing forward i think yuri is in worse trouble oh yeah yuri is a mess going backwards he is an absolute mess on the back foot yeah um, his, all of his power and all of his uh, vision for seeing strikes and responding to them, mm-hmm. and even most of his creativity is predicated on him moving forward. Mm-hmm. When he is moving backward, you often see him try to duck away and at the same time swing like a looping hook from his shoulder. Yeah. And it is both not delivered with the full full power of his body, but it also often means that he's taking his eyes off his opponent defensively. And it is, you know, and and it's predictable. Like, he doesn't get to be nearly as creative as he is when he's able to be the one pushing his opponent back and choosing which, which strike and which target is going to be open next for him. Yeah. So, yeah, if Pereira can keep Prashaska moving backward, then, um, yeah, it gets to be – if he can do it for any sustained amount of time, then I, I would just kind of write off this fight entirely. Like he like, could – I don't care how good your chin is. That's a context in which he could just KO Prashaska in the first round. Yeah. In the second round, whatever. Early. If Prashaska spends two or three minutes moving backwards against Alex Pereira, then I I would have to pick Alex Pereira. Yeah. I mean, the, the Uzdemir fight, Prashaska's just getting owned on the back yeah. foot in the first round. It's really Uzdemir's inability to sustain it mm-hmm. and probably getting too excited. Um, late in the fight with Teixeira. Teixeira, every time he steps forward and throws strikes, Prochaska's reactions are so bad. It's not just the head movement putting him out of position. It is terrible defensive footwork. Yeah. Or as yeah. you said, he is turning his back. He is he is removing himself 
from the contest, basically giving a green light to his opponent to keep throwing whatever they want to keep throwing. Yeah. And he might come up with some tricky, weird stuff. That's the type of guy he is. Some kind of weird spinning counter or something. It's not like he's truly done thinking about offense. I don't think Yuri is a guy who's ever done thinking about offense. Yeah. But he's not in position to do it well. And he's in position to be hurt badly by things he doesn't see coming. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy, actually, the more I look at this, how he is just like a goofy version of Israel Adesanya. Mm-hmm. He's like bigger and more souped up. But also all the Adesanya flaws are like more pronounced. Um, the other thing with being put on the back foot for Prochaska is that he has a long term weakness to low kicks. Yeah. Another thing which Uzdemir was really effective with and a couple other people throughout his career as well. He just doesn't check him. And yeah, he, he, the whole his whole like I I'm keeping my eyes focused and open so I can see the strikes coming and eat them. Yeah, and I am keeping my feet planted so that I can deliver shots with power. Yeah, thing for him, it requires him to just ignore the idea that low kicks can hurt him. Yeah, and typically in a really deep wide stance, which just makes yep. it more difficult to even. Or to respond in any way, not just checking, but even just getting the limb out of the way. He is the kind of dude that I can 100% absolutely guarantee believes very strongly in body conditioning yeah. to prevent uh, strike damage. Yeah. You somebody know? somebody said um, on Twitter recently that it was it's funny that you never ever see like footage of Yuri Prochaska training like in a gym. Mm-hmm. All you ever see is him like doing holding, t- holding two katanas in like a frozen forest, like screaming mm-hmm. at nature. Like, <laughs> I have no idea what this dude's training program works like. But you know, you can't just have Budo spirit as your <laughs> primary thing forever. I, I I think he's very vulnerable to low kicks, kicks in general, but low kicks which will be all the more effective if Pereira can push him back. I think Pereira is less vulnerable. And as much as it is an obvious concern for Pereira to have a mere three foot height advantage in this fight compared to his usual, um, (laughs) you know, usually in the quadrupling the size of his opponent, I think it is just as much a concern for Prochaska, who is himself used to being a big, long, freaky, light heavyweight. It's true. And, seems to be to me to be even more vulnerable to the idea of somebody being able to hit him at a range where he's used to being safe and being able to posture and flex. Um, so I have to take Pereira, but yeah, it's uh, the chaos factor is real. And uh, yeah, there, there are a couple of things here for me that have me leaning Prashaska. Yeah, let's hear it. Uh, one of the first is, you know, he doesn't do it a lot, but it's wrestling. Like, of course, always a concern in a potato fight. Yeah, it's that uh, he is, and he can because he's not a great, you know, some kind of great wrestler and great takedown threat. No, but he is just so big and fast and strong 
that when he commits himself to it, it's very hard, you know, it, it's very hard to fight him off. Basically. And he's also not going to have to, it's it's not something he's going to have to deal with from Pereira at all. So whatever happens in that arena is going to pretty much happen on his own terms. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of flexibility is really good for Prashaska. Uh, if he can be on the front foot, mm-hmm. it gives him options where Pereira, he, he knows what he can expect out of Pereira if he's pushing Pereira backwards. And it's a game that is going to be pretty much channeled through only one kind of offense, even if it's multiple strikes and technical strikes and tricky strikes it allows him the freedom to, you know, go in and, and, and throw another link into his own creative chain mm-hmm. by being able to just be like, Oh, okay, well I'm, I am, you know, looking for these strikes, but I could also duck in and grab you and take you down because you're not going to be coming back to me with a wrestling threat. Sure. And then the other thing is just like, he is the epitome of what makes a high caliber light heavyweight. Sure. And it is not technique. It is dynamic movement and power. And then coupled with insane durability. Mm -hmm. Like John Jones had, you know, some real technical uh, wrestling to his credit. But what made John Jones such a great heavyweight over the years was not really being a great technical fighter. You know? It was not his insane kickboxing skill mastery. Mm -hmm. Or even his defensive mastery. Certainly. He would just get hit really hard a lot and get kicked in the legs a lot and march people down with the certainty that he was big enough and strong enough and durable enough that he could take them out of the fight. Mm-hmm. Prashaska does not have Jones's cold calculation, which no. <laughs> is more likely to lead him to disaster. Uh, I think that's what made Jones such an incredibly long running threat was that he was just, yeah, he never get he, Jones would, he was no, you know, kind of great technical master, but he never made a mistake either. You know, really? Yeah. You would have to go in. Jones, and- Jones has one of the best, I think, in MMA history, the best senses of what is happening in the fight and who isn't better. Like he has the best yeah. intuitive understanding of who's winning. Yeah. And how much more needs to be done or how much does not need to be done to continue winning or to pick up a round like he is in a way, a brilliant strategic fighter. Yeah, definitely. Even when he, I don't know that he had a good game plan. Like even in that first Gustafson fight, still you could never overwhelm Jones by just like doing too much to him or not giving him enough opportunities. He would make them by force if he had to. Yep. He would pressure if he had to, he would do whatever he needed to, to pick up rounds. Prochaska is a finish hunter. Yeah. That's all he wants. All he wants is a finish, and the whole fight could be a complete blur. 
Yeah. Uh, like he was Off probably winning that Teixeira fight, but then again, it was it was not. I don't think by design. It was complete no. chaos the entire time, and there were long portions where he was just getting trucked. Then he comes out afterward and talks about these fights, and he's like, "Oh, I want to show something much like cleaner and more masterful." I'm like, "You do? Yeah. Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Seems like chaos is the plan." Um. Yeah, I'm just. I'm honestly. I just worry about the ways I've seen Pareda get hurt. But I think part of it with the with the wrestling, like I can see there's an avenue here where Pareda could break Prashaska. Like I say, if, if Prashaska has to spend multiple minutes of this fight on his back foot, mm-hmm. then I am very worried about him just getting broken down over time. But I also feel like there is just, you know, it, it might not be quite as uh, substantial in one way, one way or one sided if Prashaska is going forward. Mm-hmm. But along with his 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 ability to like be damaging from top control, his ability to be you know, powerful in submissions. Powerful. I just feel like there are more opportunities for Prashazka to find places where he could really hurt Pereira. Sure. hundred percent. So I think I'm going to take Yuri Prashazka here. I, I'm, I can easily see the way that he gets beat, mm-hmm. but he just feels so much like the, the ideal light heavyweight. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just have this weird feeling that it's not the ideal light heavyweights who are going to beat <laughs> Banana. I think he also has enough of those qualities that he these does guys have a lot of those who are used to just himself. blasting people, yeah, thinking all offense all the time, are going to be quite vulnerable against him because he has that dynamism combined with actual skill. It's going to yeah. be dudes like Jan Blachowicz or like, you know, perish the thought, but like Magomed Ankalaev. Yeah, we're going to give like really, really tough fights to Pereira by just not doing much and actually being like pretty good strikers from a pretty safe range. No, I, I, not I can people hit. who can hit Pereira from from mutual range, but then cannot maintain it to save their life and just pile in. And it's like, OK, counter me, counter me, counter me. Yeah, um, I get it. I'm I'm not knocking your pick. I mean, I I feel this is a very much a toss up kind of fight. I just um my gut feeling is what I'm going to go with here, that Pereira is too sharp on the counter, too liable to, I think, actually put some pressure on Prochaska, especially early. I mean, I think he could yeah. have a very hot start in this fight, which typically happens in Yuri's fights. And it could go very, very badly for him, that he could rack yeah. up serious attritive damage from low kicks, that he could just get chinned. Um, I, I got no reason not to think that Pereira can't, you know, can win this. I got no sure. reason to think that Pereira won't or can't win this. Yeah. I'm just can't help it. I just feel like Prashaska is just too much that dude for almost anyone mm-hmm. at this stage in his career. 
you know? Yeah. That has provided his shoulder works. Yeah. I thought it was a knee injury, but it was actually an equally concerning. It was his shoulder got hurt, and then some idiot at the gym tried to pop it back in, apparently. Oh, good. Yeah. Just tried to, like, yank on it and, you know, get it. I'm going to go ahead and say you probably can't blame the idiot at the gym. Guaranteed, Yuri was on board for this. Yeah. He was like, this is what the samurai would have done on the battlefield of feudal Japan. Prashaska opened at plus 114. He's currently plus 106. Parada opened at minus 126, currently a minus 117. All right, that brings us to a heavyweight bout. Sergei Pavlovich, Tom Aspinall. And this is, this is tough. Another one, yep. Yeah, this is tough to call. Mostly because there's so much stuff both these guys don't do. Like, Pavlovich, his boxing has come a long way. I will say that. He's now flashing a jab in front of his right hand. And... I would say it's bad, but it's not as... And for a while, it's not as bad as you think it should be. Yeah, exactly. He knows what he's doing. He's not just out there making accidental mistakes. (laughs) Like, he, he understands what he's doing out there. Yeah, you see him, like sitting down and, like, cranking on some wild overhand and then, like, throwing three more of them. And you're like, okay, this is just really one note. Yeah. But you watch him over the course of several minutes, and you'll see, like, you know, he's he's putting a jab in front of it enough to make people have to consider his entry, consider him at long distance. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets into the pocket... He is really in, like, juggernaut mode. He is a messy but surprisingly accurate and creative combination puncher. Yeah, and he will will do a good job, too, of just bunching his shoulders down and getting his forehead forward. Yeah. So that there's not a real easy spot to hit, and he is chambering a huge shot. And he, and he tends to uh, he tends to do a lot of punching because let, let's be honest, this works because other heavyweights are even worse at striking. Yeah, he tends to do a lot of effective punching inside the wider, stupider punches of his opponents. Yeah, like you said he gets he gets his chin down and um, will just sort of like glance uh, glance incoming hooks off of his shoulders and elbows as he is actively throwing himself. Yeah. And just beat them to the punch. Yeah, he he has some serious, you know, there is a reason that this is working so often, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and part of the reason is that this is the thing that works at heavyweight. Yeah. Be aggressive, be huge, hit like a truck, um, you know, and 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 do that against people who suck like that. Yep. <laughs> that is a big reason why it works. But it is, uh, you know, it is worth pointing out that there is some consideration to Pavlovich's technique. You wouldn't describe the form of any of his shots as proper, but also you wouldn't describe them as thoughtless. Yeah. And Tom Aspinall is definitely working a much he, he you know, Tom, I've always said like Tom Aspinall fights like he grew up training as a lightweight. You know, he, he got into the gym when he was 10 Mm-hmm. And weighed 155 pounds, 
and he hit like 17 and he was just instantly modern day Tom Aspinall sized. Yeah. And so his game, a lot of the, the way he fights, it looks like a much lighter man fighting. Yep. It's very predicated on like bouncy footwork, very predicated on being fast and dipping in and out of the pocket and on, you know, trying to be dynamic Mm-hmm. And uh, get skate away from people and do things that lighter weight fighters do. Yeah, to... and and he has a quality that is basically cheating in this division, which is that he's actually quite well rounded. Yeah, he can hit. Uh, he can go in and hit a hit a double leg and take somebody's back and mm-hmm. get a rear naked choke, or you know, hit a ten finger guillotine or something like that. Like. He's just got a Great. good idea of figure how four to, straight armbar. <laughs> yeah, he's got a good idea Classic of how submission to, technique. How to do a bunch of MMA stuff because he's he grew up doing it and he learned to do it when he was young enough that he was not a lumbering giant. And, and he is—I don't think he would have ever been a lumbering. He is an sure. incredible athlete. Sure, but like. He's like a Cyril Gaon athlete while being beefier than Cyril Gaon. He is a really impressive athlete. Sure, but like Walt Harris is a good athlete. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Has speed and power and could be light on his feet. But he grew up playing basketball. Yeah. And made the move to MMA, and his MMA game is pretty flat footed. Yeah. And just, you know, sort of stalking. And it's a it's a heavyweight big man MMA game. Aspinall style takes full advantage of his athletic ability. Yeah, it really does. Um, he, he so he sh- like offensively he's pretty much cleaner at everything than Sergey Pavlovich. Mm-hmm. The trouble is is that he still he also has the kind of defense you get from growing up doing MMA. Mm-hmm. Which is to say none. Again, I, I sort of I would say he's arguably better than Yuri Prochaska. Yeah, that. he actually tries to keep defense. He actually tries to do defense with range. Yeah, but in a yeah. similar way, like when he's punching, he is really counterable. Yeah, he um, his chin is very up high. And when he tries to get out of range, he backs up with his head straight in the air. But he does have an ability to read an exchange beyond just what is my opponent open for. Sure. He will sort of ride the back and forth tempo of an exchange. He will come in with a one-two, know that a stupid looping shot is coming back at him, and preemptively hop back to a slight angle with the idea of letting it miss and then piling right back in. Yeah. Um you know, he will slip a shot with the express. It's all very aggressively minded defense. Yeah. But he does know that the opponent is going to try to throw to keep him off. And he mm-hmm. uses his agility to to try to work around that. Uh, and it just does not save him from getting nailed really hard and really clean at least once in every fight. Yeah. And so the question here really is just can Tom Aspinall be defensive enough? to not eat huge shots from a 
very determined and more selective than you th- and surprisingly selective yeah. power puncher like Sergei Pavlovich, who is going to meet Aspinall in, in in exactly the kind of bounce in bounce out exchange that Aspinall wants to have and be ready right there with a huge punch of his own. Yeah, more than one huge punch, likely. Yeah. You know, he, he will have trouble as long as Aspinall can be the speedier, more agile fighter. Because yeah. Pavlovich is a good athlete, too. I mean, he has speed, but you only see it in his hands. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he has the more footwork. <laughs> he's the more typical heavyweight, the lumbering giant, where it's yes. like, yeah, even though you ha- you are a natural athlete with good speed. Right. You are flat-footed. You are not looking to move around a lot. You are looking to use your bulk to make people yeah. scared and to hurt them. One you know? of these guys is maximizing power. The other is maximizing speed. Yep. Um, I would say the real question to ask about this fight, uh, not your fake bullshit question, but the yeah, real yeah. one, is uh, can Tom Aspinall out-wrestle Sergey Pavlovich? Yeah. Because he's definitely going to try to do it. I mean, he would be an idiot not to. If you look at Sergey Pavlovich's one UFC loss, it was Alistair Overeem taking him down and crushing him on the floor. Yeah. And which should be said, Overeem did that by getting into what Pavlovich considered to be his own wheelhouse. Yeah. As a Greco Roman guy. Yeah, I thought he had a Greco background. I, I didn't imagine yep. that. No, he, he did. He does. Um, and beating him there in the in those Greco-Roman clinches. Yeah. With with trip and upper body takedown and with takedowns from that point. Yeah. Aspinall is not that likely to do it. He, he did hit a body lock outside trip kind of deal. Oh, that's Volkov. true. He did. I think he has, he likes the shot. He likes the shot, Uh, which to his credit, most heavyweights can't do it as well as he does it. No. Um, But yeah, it has to be noted. Curtis Blades shot too late on Pavlovich in their fight after he was already getting tagged up. Yeah. But Pavlovich did show what is a common trait of Greco Roman guys that I have seen. Uh, really thinking back to like Dan Henderson's heyday mm-hmm. of just being able to like sprawl a tiny bit and have it be like trying to take down a tree. Yeah. Like just like pop the hips back or forward a little and the feet back a little. And suddenly mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, you can't move this person to save your life. Yeah. Being like sort of sort of shooting a double on like a on like a like a Stonehenge type uh, dolmen kind of yeah it just sort of leans over on you <laughs> like oh <laughs> this sucks yeah but I I think the other thing about Pavlovich is like that first layer takedown defense is quite strong yeah but as we saw in the Overeem fight if you continue to test him in wrestling if Aspinall can do that then there's not a lot to back it up no no and he, he certainly he, does not like a lot enjoy of He's only yeah. used to being the hammer, never the nail. 100%. So I think that is the huge question because Tom Aspinall had a fight with Volkov in which he did outstrike him at points, but he was like, why would I not take this guy down? Yeah, it's true. That was his game plan. That is the kind of strategic thinker Tom Aspinall is. He will 
use his well-roundedness um, to take the, the path of least resistance. He's just going to get hit really hard at least once. Yeah. He appears to have a pretty great chin. He does. But, uh, yeah, it's a concern to get hit really hard by a guy like Pavlovich. Yeah. I think I'm going to pick Tom Aspinall. Uh, I think the speed and the ability to surprise and change dynamics is just going to be too much for Pavlovich. But I felt a lot lately like Pavlovich is heading towards a loss. Mm Mm-hmm. And it just keeps not happening. Mm-hmm. Like, he is really proof positive that heavyweight is just not very good. Because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a very one-note game that he's working, and nobody can get out of the way of it. Mm-hmm. And Aspinall will not for this whole fight. There will be a moment where he will make a terrible error. Because Aspinall is always banking on that kind of chanciness, even against uh oh man even against Marcin Tybura. Yeah yeah got yeah, cracked. cracked yep every single fight yeah so I'm taking Aspinall but ah oh, it's a very fingers crossed taking him. Yeah it's a good sign that he does it happens every single fight and he's yet to really get I mean Andre Arlovsky's stunned him a bit yeah there's more aspinall getting tired from going ape shit i think and that yeah than it was him really getting super badly hurt um so it does speak to his durability and his confidence like he doesn't get put off by the fact that he's getting hit in all these fights it's true um but yeah i have to pick aspinall as well i think the speed is a is a huge factor but for me it really is just the well-roundedness that like uh, he is going to be the guy who is at some point Pavlovich is going to get really keyed in to having these fun exchanges. And I think even just a shot, he's proven to be pretty good at stopping those, but a shot from a very quick Aspinall who has great timing yeah, uh, on top of his speed could just take him over cleanly and just take him down. And the, the think, other thing to it's re- a terrible place to be. That's really in Aspinall's favor here is his kicking game. Especially his high kicking game. Yeah, it did sort of. I know it was only a 14 second fight or whatever, but it was sort of the kicking game that got him owned by Curtis Blades. I'm, I'm concerned about him throwing a bunch of naked kicks at a guy like Pavlovich. Yeah, I just think he can use it. From range, well, I mean, Pavlovich's arms are are absurdly long. Yeah, I, I don't know. Curtis I, I has long he, arms, and he just—that's why Pavlovich blew his knee out. He went for a naked low kick, and Curtis Blades mean, fired two straight punches down the middle. Yeah. Sorry, I so said you mean Aspinall, but yes. Aspinall, yes. Yeah. And Blades fired two counters straight down the middle, and it forced him to take a really awkward saving step, and, and his knee exploded. Yeah, I just think he can. I think Aspinall might be able to make Pavlovich keep his his keep his right hand at home with high kicks. That would be cool. That would be a nice uh, thought. Yeah, you know, there's a chance for that because that was that was notable in the Tybora fight as well was his ability, him just like hitting a one-two and then a high kick on the end mm-hmm. of it, mm-hmm. and being able to chain that kind of combination together. Yeah. 
it, like I say, it, it is the kind of thing that will also get him blasted. But yeah, not not the kind of thing I'd hang a game plan on, but something if the fight stretches on to yeah, certainly a useful idea to t- sort of holster Pavlovich's uh, overhand right. Yeah. Anyway, odds on the fight basically dead even. Pavlovich opened at plus 108, currently plus 105. Aspinall opened at minus 120, currently minus 115. Yeah, I mean, both these title fights, I think they just have to stay close. Really dangerous finishers, all four fighters involved. Mm Mm-hmm. So. I gotta be honest, all I do is shit on the heavyweight division, but I can't help it. I want to see this. Oh, yeah, it's a great fight. And I make fun of light heavyweight a lot, but lovingly, like, because it is a bonkers division, which is almost always fun to watch, or at least interesting or weird. I, I, I can't lie. Both of these fights are pretty great. Yeah. Can't complain. No. Anyway, that's past the part of the card where I can't complain. Let's move on. Let's see. Yeah, the part you can. Oh, yeah. That's not going to stop me all the way. Are you kidding me? Mackenzie Dern, Jessica Andrade, Rowan Strawweight bout. And not the fight I need to see for either woman, honestly. Nope. Don't really get it. Um, I feel like the uh, Tatiana Suarez fight for Mackenzie Dern is right there, yep. and that is such a cool fight. Seems pretty obvious to me. That not getting it for this fight with Andrade, who just seems more and more like she is not in a good spot. It just, I don't, you know doesn't do anything for me that's really my whole methodology for picking this one yeah this is like i think a great time to just make a vibes pick yeah jessica andrage um it has come out in recent years that she has basically just been brutally exploited Mm -hmm. by her team and the people around her probably for most of her career um in part and parcel of that is that she has spent a very long time being an obvious physical talent, mm-hmm. but never really making any sustained improvements to her game. Yeah. And now, as far as I can tell, she is not enjoying being a fighter. That's how it seems. She just seems to not like it. And she's going out there unfocused without a clear plan. She doesn't she she no longer seems to have a thing that defined her fights even when they were pure chaos. There is like an idea of I've talked about this before. There's like a strategic idea of like investment that it helps a fighter to have. Mm-hmm. Where you can go into a fight and just get lit up for like the first round, the first two rounds. It's just not going your way, but if you can justifiably frame all of that as an investment in the you winning the big picture of the fight, then you can sustain that. You you can mm-hmm. take all that punishment. You can walk through whatever you have to walk to. This is like the, why it's so hard to pick a, um, a, um, oh, what's the big, tall featherweights, weird, lanky, super aggressive, lost to 
Come on, help me out here. He's got, he's got, he's got like an Italian name. <laughs> Sorry, wait, what, what fight are you talking about here? Big, tall, featherweight, uh, not particularly athletic, really, really high pressure, always loses oh, the Billy first Quarantillo. round. Billy yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's why Billy Quarantillo, you cannot pick his fights based on what happens in the first round. Yeah, sorry, I, I was I, like five minutes ago. I was gonna say, oh yeah, 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 we're talking the Billy Billy Quarantillo theory here, and then <laughs> it took you so long to get to the point where I could say that that I just totally tuned out. Yeah, that but that's it, right? Like, yeah, Billy Quarantillo, it works for him because he knows that none of this stuff that's going wrong is actually going wrong. It's all according to the plan. It's, it's fine. Darren Elkins is the same way. Yeah, tons of fighters, and it's it's a real thing. Like it's it's psychologically like bolstering. Um to have that knowledge that like, it's okay. The fight can be messy, but like, I am going to win. This is part of it. And Jessica Andrade had that. Even when she didn't seem to have a great plan necessarily, she went in her fights and it was like, all of this is fine because like, I am going to get to them. And she doesn't seem to have that anymore. She seems mm -hmm. desperate. She seems confused. She seems aimless and planless. And like, she is getting troubled by the fact that things aren't clicking for her right away in the fight. Yeah. She doesn't seem to know what she's doing. And I think it's because she doesn't like what she's doing. And, and I, uh, without saying a single thing about like the dynamics of the fight, that is enough for me to pick an apparently very focused and determined Mackenzie Dern over her. Mm -hmm. It's, it's kind of just a vibes pick. Yeah. Mackenzie, you know, she has looked incredibly determined uh this year in that fight against hill she was a she was a juggernaut yep and it's uh you know the the thing with with andrage is like she's looking hesitant on her feet lately yeah. yep you know she looks like she starts taking a couple steps to fire shots and realizes that she's about to miss wildly and open herself up for a counter. Yeah. And so she just stops. Which was never a concern for her before. Yeah. Missing wildly was step a in throwing the next four punches. One of which at least would land. Yeah. That was how she used to think. And uh, the the unfortunate part of that too is then that the safety valve for her is clinching, and Jessica Andrade's clinch game has never actually been great. No, she's strong. She's strong, and that's really it. Like Valentina Shevchenko absolutely ate her up in the clinch, and you know. Uh, Angela Hill was able to just sort of stifle her and keep the fight, she, keep she in the fight. Her. She beat her yeah. as long as that fight was in the clinch. Yeah. And it's, it's just not a fight, you know, that getting to the clinch, it only really helps her when her opponent doesn't have an idea of what they want to do there. Yep. And like, yeah, she can get uh, Mackenzie Dern up against the cage and just lean on her. That, uh, that's what Angela Hill did a bunch. Yeah, but again, this state. is the Angela Hill who who, <laughs> who beat Andrade in the clinch. Angela Hill yeah. is a genuinely good clinch fighter. She is a, a genuinely good clinch fighter. 
Um, but you, you know, more, more to the point is like that gives Dern an, an opportunity to get to the next part of her game that she wants to get to. Yeah. Which is, you know, like even if she has to sacrifice position to get you to the floor. Sure. She will sa- she will make that sacrifice with that idea. She is the quality of techni- of grappling technician which actually does give her the ability against most of her opponents to pull guard and have it not be a terrible mistake. Yeah. That's and a rare thing in modern MMA, but Mackenzie Dern relative to her opponent, she has that quality. And I'm, you know, what we saw in, I'm not saying that Mackenzie Dern is the level of chain wrestler that Tatiana Suarez is, but we did see in the Tatiana Suarez fight that, Jessica Andrade could defend a lot of the first shot attempts from Suarez, but would lose out on on the scramble. The the deeper that that it got into that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just got to go with Dern. There is every opportunity here for Jessica Andrade to just keep this a brawl and hit Dern super hard. Honestly. But we've also, you know, it has to be said, we've never seen Mackenzie Dern knocked out. We haven't even really seen her hurt, have we? Yeah, we've seen her get clipped in a way that gets her off balance, but she just tends to kind of like plant her feet and slap her hands together and wait and back in. She's in such a bad position and it's su- such a clean shot. Like Yuri Pachowska, you got to say at this point, Dern's got a chin. Yeah, she's got a chin. Because she should be getting knocked out by some of the shots she's eaten. She also made very small but meaningful improvements to her striking in that Angela Hill fight. Yeah. Her striking is still an absolute mess, but she is like staying facing her opponent while throwing insane berserker combinations. <laughs> she's not, she's catching herself as she flings herself off balance. She's fighting a lot more like how Jessica Andrade used to fight. Yeah. You got to say this for, I mean, I think it's kind of the Adolfo Vieira thing Yeah, where it's like, okay, clearly the thing that made you part of what made you an, a championship level uh, martial artist in your right. first chosen field is the determination to stick with something and continue to work on it and improve it. Yeah. Mackenzie Dern yeah. is at this point, it's pretty, I think she, I think um, she's, I want to say a, a, another good comparison for Dern might be Henry Cejudo. I was just going to go to that. Yeah. Cejudo is also a student of the game, but early in Cejudo's MMA career, because he had this, this just like out, like he was a great yeah. athlete and he had this a game that was just like there for him. He was just kind of fritting around and not taking things very seriously. And he was like missing weight. Um, and I remember there were like a lot of issues for, like between him and his coaches and stuff with like his discipline and how seriously yeah. he was taking it. There were then, many, many people that felt Henry Cejudo would be washed out of MMA by the time he was 30. Yeah. And then he got, he found a way to get motivated. Yeah. Yeah. He humiliated. Saw, well, yeah. That's really what it took. He got humiliated. And I think it was maybe the same for Dern. She got yep. humiliated professionally and also in her personal life. I think, yeah. Uh, she, 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 Dern did lose a couple fights, which I think probably 
helped uh, her get off of the oh I have I'm I'm spending all my training time at the beach thing that she yeah. used to have. She was also like Cejudo, missing weight and yeah. She clearly just wasn't taking it really very seriously. Yeah, and then she lost to Amanda Hebish. And I think that changed that aspect for Dern. But it does feel like the the public humiliation of her private life might have actually turned her into a somebody who actually feels like they have a reason to be fighting. Yeah, and she also divorced her uh, allegedly abusive husband. Yeah. Like just before the hill fight, maybe a bunch of shit was going on for Dern. Maybe she wasn't taking it seriously. Maybe she couldn't be fully focused on it. Yeah. Um, maybe it was a mutually toxic relationship. I can't speak to it. I have no idea. I haven't even no. read up on it. But it was clear that she had reached an even uh, a new level of motivation in that Angela Hill fight. Yep. She was like an absolutely unstoppable force. And that speaks to exactly what you were getting at. That this is an elite competitor who has a really inhuman competitive drive to obsess about yeah. getting better at this one thing she has chosen to, to, to fixate on. Yep. And, uh, and Raj doesn't have that. No. She doesn't, she doesn't appear to have that motivation. No, I mean, that, that is, I think one of the big differences, you know, we talked about this a lot with like hoofed and the stable of fighters that go through that camp and how like his tough love tough love strategy yeah works re- it seems like it works really just totally fine and what and great on people who've already been champions before mhm you know you got your gilbert burns you got your kamaru usman you've got those kinds of people who get into that uh is probably the kind of coach they had in their earlier careers too like this is yeah yeah it's daddy like daddy's here he's gonna tell you what to do and you'd better damn well listen like that is the coaching uh the classic coaching style yep and it works you know and it's also just too it's a thing where like if you have somebody who is confident enough to know that they could be a world champion already in another discipline you're not gonna you're not gonna convince them that they can't be champ and they're not they going to be put off or discouraged by the difficulty of the process that they're exactly. used to that. They've been through it. Whereas people who have never been a competitive, uh, a, a real top level competitive athlete before they can get into that kind of coaching situation and just be like, this is taking all of my love. Yeah. You know, because competing is, is stressful enough as it is. Yeah. This is taking all my drive and motivation and love for doing it, and I don't want to anymore. Yeah, which is fair enough. Not everybody's yeah. not everybody's built for this, and that's not a knock on them. But yeah, and sometimes you know the coaching a person like that needs to get through is somebody is your Greg Jackson, mm-hmm. you know your uh, Trevor Whitman style, a nurturing mm-hmm. coach. Yeah, I, I would not imagine uh, Rose Namajunas thriving in a Henry Hooft environment. Yeah. You know, my my de- my father, Henry, keeps me in line. But one thing I'll say about Uncle Trevor, he would never leave me out to die of exposure. Yeah. For, for like being born crippled or whatever. He wouldn't do it. No. Henry would be <laughs> like, I taught you how to make a coat and a fire. Yeah. You know, and you come back to me and you're star- you tell me you're starving. Yeah. You're no. weak. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> he's not even a teach a man to fish kind of guy. He's a teach a man to learn to fish. Yeah. <laughs> Sink or swim. I don't think he's quite that ruthless. I mean, no, I think he, he's, I, I'm quite sure there is a real, I, I, this sounds weird for me to be harping on this, but there genuinely is like a fa- a coach is a father figure. Yeah. Especially for most male athletes. That is the relationship. It's like mentor, it's father and teacher, but like it is an authority position. Yeah. You have to have like respect. And mm-hmm. um, part of that, I'm sure, is that Henry Hooft is nurturing in his own way. But yeah, yeah. you're right. He, he The fighters who really flourish with him are um, people who have full competitive careers behind them already. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, or like Ian Gary going there. Right. Where you're like, yeah, who's going to – I don't think anybody's convincing Ian Gary that he's not going to be great. That he might not. Driven. He's driven, though. He has driven. the obsession that is required to be a truly elite competitor. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I, I'm i not feeling any good vibes out of Jessica Andrade right now. No, so. I have – I feel quite sympathetic for her. I mean, I like yeah. Jessica Andrade. She's – delivered so many great fights she seems like a pretty nice person and it's just a it's just a bad vibe that you get from from her situation yep what can you do yeah odds on the fight dern is uh the favorite opened at minus 201 currently minus 191 andrage opened at plus 178 currently plus 170 all right, that brings us to a lightweight bout. Matt Frivola, Benoit Saint-Denis. And uh, this feels a little bit more predictable to me in that it will be absolute chaos. Yeah. Um, but I don't even mean that in the, like, snarky, dumbass way that it sounded. Like, oh, this will be more predictable in that it's going to be absolute chaos. You know. The real winners are the fans. The real winners are the fans. No. Um, Matt Frivola, I think, is doing a better job surviving in the kind of fight that he knows he shouldn't have but will always have. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think being that dude is the way to survive against Benoit Saint-Denis. Mm-hmm. Like... Matt Frivola, I'm sure Sarah Longo is never going to want to take the wild man out of him entirely. But I think it's also clear, like, he knows I need to be a little bit considered, you know? Yeah. Pick my shots a little better, be better on the counter. He was very willing to be on the back foot against Drew Dober Mm -hmm. and let Drew Dober walk on to him. He's he's honestly had that for quite a while. He he's like a, yeah. he's a pretty good natural counterpuncher, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't freak out when he's being pressured. This is how you no. know he is like a true brawler. Yeah, I don't think it is panic that makes Matt Frivola brawl. No, no, it's not. He it's not. It's it's excitement. It's yeah. Just, he yeah. Man. He just gets amped and goes for it. Yeah. Um, he's more like Benil. He sees red. Yeah. And so I think, you know, he's he's doing his best to claw that back in so that he can be more the high-level fighter he might want to be, mm-hmm. which is going to require more of his wrestling skill and um, more of his ability to 
come forward and create offense that can draw counters rather than just like waiting for Drew Dober like he did for a lot of that. He 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 threw a nice jab out there too and got in Dober's face and made Dober a little more desperate, I think. Mm-hmm. But it still was a performance where, you know, Dober was getting to do a lot of stuff that was working just fine and then traded hooks and came out the worst for it, you know. But Benoit Saint-Denis is just... He's driven and seems unbreakable and is driven and unbreakable in a way that does more things than just punch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what makes Matt has made Matt Frivola so successful lately is that his last three opponents just punch. They literally just go out there mm-hmm. and throw hands. And Matt Frivola can account for that. Mm-hmm. And... Benoit Santini isn't that guy. He has a hell of a kicking game. And he has an aggressive wrestling and grappling game. Mm-hmm. And maybe he'll lose out on some scrambles against Favola. Favola's no... No slouch. No slouch on the, on the mat. But... I just feel like Favola is going to let Benoit Santini be first. Yep. And if Benoit Saint-Denis can be first, yep. I don't trust Frivola to be Eliza Zaleski dos Santos and be just so strong and indefatigable and unbreakable that Frivola, that Benoit Saint-Denis will like kill himself while killing Frivola. You know? Yeah. This is why it's so hard to be a counterpuncher in MMA. I mean, mm-hmm fundamentally like uh, i think you you really summed it up like if it's a boxing match basically you can get away with it all day mm-hmm. um if you have the comfort and the poise and you you have the right answers then you sort of narrow down like what kind of initiative you're dealing with yeah and what types of possible threats you're going to have to respond to and it's harder in like kickboxing and it's much harder in mma to be a guy who lets the opponent have initiative, who let, gives them space and lets them pressure because who knows what they're going to do. Uh, and who knows what kind of traps and tricks they might be able to set up because you're letting them go first. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be really, really sharp. You have to be really super positionally minded. I think to do that against a broad range of styles in MMA, you have to make sure that you are never letting that pressured opponent into range or giving them an angle from which they can do anything safely. Yeah. Like you have to be like Rafael Sunsell, like constantly adjusting your feet. You have to be on top of the positional battle that comes before any strikes are being exchanged. And Frivola wants to let people step in. Yeah. Cause he likes to counter punch. And like I said, he's pretty good at it. Uh, and has been for quite a while. I mean, he was pretty good at counterpunching in his fight with uh, Luis Pena, who was like four feet taller than him. Mm-hmm. And he was still like letting that dude walk him down and and pretty effectively countering him in combination. 
He's not bad at it. No. But uh, yeah, Benoit Saint-Denis has the kicking game. Um, he is a super fundamentally aggressive fighter. And the wrestling, I think, is the huge. It's just the fact that he can set all these different things up and will not be deterred. He will be very excited to pressure, if anything. Um, so I, I, yeah. I think I'm, I agree with you. Also, he's he's got to be bigger than Frivola, doesn't he? Nah, yeah, he's five eleven, and Frivola is five nine. So yeah, I mean, couple couple inches in height. A, he's a thick five eleven. Yeah, couple inches in height and a couple inches in reach. Okay. So he's bigger, he's beefier, um, and yeah, I, I got to pick him. Just giving yep. a guy like that the opportunity to pressure for several minutes at a time, there's, there's just too much uh, too, too much dy- dy- dynamism to deal with. Yeah, and like we saw, you know, Benoit Saint-Denis against a very good counter-striker himself in um, Tiago Moises yeah. recently, and... Yeah, Moises got some good shots in along sure. the way, but it was just a, a momentum problem. Sure. You know. Still impossible. Santini's defense a, isn't great. Frivola, nope. like you said, good counterpuncher, hits hard. Yep. Doesn't uh, Does not get discouraged easily, even when the fight is going terribly. No. He is a really, like, he's, surprisingly, he's a he is a dog, for sure. I, I like Frivola a lot, actually. I have, yeah. I have. He's been a a, a little uh, secret point of excitement for me for a long time, probably ever since that Luis Pena fight. Yeah, I mean those those it's those the Saralonga dudes. They just do such a good job at that camp of taking whatever kind of fighter they have and being like, okay, we're gonna be good at that. Yep. We're gonna work on the stuff you do, and we're gonna make it, you know, make you comfortable with it. Yeah, and he's dangerous, man. Dangerous yep. and. Uh, not easy to put off and will badly lose two rounds and still be in there in round three doing his utmost to win. So yep. I think it's still a should be pretty close kind of odds, but yeah, Definitely. I'm with you on the pick. Frivola opened at plus 166, is currently at plus 191. And Saint Denis opened at minus 217, is currently at minus 217. So a little up and down on his numbers, but they've ended up right back where they started. I think it makes sense for him to just be a, a, a solid but not huge favorite. Yep. And that brings us to a featherweight bout. Diego Lopez, Pat Sabatini. And um, it's not hard for me to see the hype of this fight and, like, who feels like they have the momentum. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult for me to, like, shake the feeling that Diego Lopez is just a little bit of a, like, severe matchup dependence guy. A trick fighter? (laughs) Yeah. 100%. Yeah, you look at Pat Sabatini's game. And you're like, there's problems here. He's a little stiff in places. He can get hurt. Um but it, it makes a lot of sense why it works as well as it does. Yeah, it's very controlled. It's very process-driven. It's a very grappling in stages, suffocate, take away Positional, opportunities. Positional, right? Yeah. He, he's, you know, th- this is a guy who will be picking up rounds. 
even when he can't finish the guy. Yep. And Diego Lopez is a guy who can be nearly finishing somebody for a large part of a round that he loses. Yep. Um, clearly super dangerous and super confident, essentially a grappling brawler. Mm-hmm. Diego Lopez, who will just be going for the finish. But I think you put him up against a certain caliber of grappler and it's like, h- how are you going to win the rounds? Yeah. I mean, he's got six losses on his record and, you know, the Mosar Ivlov one is the most recent one, but he lost to Joe Anderson Brito on the Contender Series a couple of years ago. Okay. He lost to Nate Richardson on the regional scene. Yep. Um, and, you know, he's got an, another early loss to Amir Elzerkaev. My favorite. He's just... He's taken some losses over his career and all of almost all of his wins. In fact, yeah, almost all of his They're wins. All not finishes. All, almost all of his wins are finishes. Yeah. Which speaks so, to his finishing ability. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to knock the guy for a losing. Pat Sabatini no. got wrecked by Damon Jackson not long ago. Yeah. Um, he gets finished, too. Yeah. Uh, and he's lost, too. But it doesn't seem like the kind of style matchup that favors the way in which Diego Lopez gets his finishes, which is like positionally sacrificial submission hunter. Yeah. And uh, certainly, like I was still impressed. We both were in his performance against Mavsar Evloev. We have to remember that Evloev did not have a full camp to prepare mm-hmm. for Lopez's style, which makes him especially dangerous. But he forced Evloev to just play f- fully committed defense many times in that fight where he just had to abandon. Yeah whatever he was doing to try to win the round or get his own finish and just go defensive to escape. But because he's a great grappler himself, he was able to do that. Even just sort of finding out who this guy was basically on the fly, he was able to deal with those threats. Yeah. And it turned out that the guy who was just conceding top position over and over when he couldn't get the finish, he just lost. Mm-hmm. that's how that style works. And I have to assume Pat Sabatini can win in much the same way, especially given that he will have been preparing for Diego Lopez's crazy submission hunting style. He's a better wrestler. He's a tighter uh, positional grappler by far. And um, has he ever been submitted? Don't think no. so. Never been submitted. The The one... The, the the one note of caution beyond the Damon Jackson loss that I have for Pat Sabatini is his 2018 loss to Chepe Mariscal, mm-hmm. who, you know, is now performing pretty well in the UFC. But yeah, Chepe Mariscal, who's now known as a, you know, who's made him a, 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 he's doing pretty well performing in the UFC, but is you know, known and made his name as sort of a an all-out brawler who will go for things everywhere. Mm-hmm. And he took a, a split decision off Pat Sabatini. Mm-hmm. That's been a few years, obviously, since that happened. He's a significantly better striker than Diego Lopez. Yeah, but Lopez will sell out on stri- Sabatini's not a good striker. No, that is. He's, and, and Lopez is also a significantly better athlete than Chepe Mariscal. That's true. So, I mean, there is there is definitely room here for Lopez to 
just be the more violent guy in the fight. Yeah, yeah. I think Sabatini has always been a little prone to just getting overwhelmed by somebody who doesn't want to play a game with him. Yeah. But wants to destroy him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a real danger here. Mm-hmm. I. But I just, I just got to pick the. Yeah. The positional grappler over a guy who gives up position so willingly. Yeah. I guess I'll go with Pat Sabatini as well, but it's definitely hard for me to shake the feeling that he could just like get flying need in the opening frame and that'll be the end of this fight. Mm-hmm. I think Diego Lopez. I think he got to the UFC at just the right time. It feels like he has a game that might not win him every fight, but that is, he has had a ton of fights now, and he has a game that he's now very confident in. Mm-hmm. No question. And he feels like he knows how to fight everywhere and knows what he wants to do everywhere. And he's a good enough athlete to make a lot of it happen. And that could make him a real dangerous wild card in the featherweight division, honestly. You know? No question. He already has been. Yeah. All right. I will I will side with you on Sabatini pick, but I'm feeling chancy about it. Sabatini is the favorite opened at minus one twenty nine, currently minus one fourteen. Lopez, the underdog, plus opened at plus one seventeen, currently plus one oh three. So very nearly dead even on those odds. And I'm not surprised. All right, on that note, for our uh, Substack subscribers, we're going to have a little extra bonus content. And for those of you listening uh, who aren't subscribers, thanks, and uh, we appreciate, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for enjoying the show. But subscribe. Enjoy the bonus content, too. Help us out. Please. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, Go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcasts and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey, Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us. <laughs>